I pray that that is your plea, your argument this day. But if not, pay close attention to the preaching of God's Word and hear how it can be today. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Nehemiah. Once again, Nehemiah, this morning we're in chapters 9 and 10. Chapters 9 and 10. I figured I would do a verse per bite of food that you all plan to eat as soon as the service is over. How about that? Nehemiah 9 and 10. Now, the verses are not going to be on the screen. You need to keep your Bibles open because we're going to be referring to the Scriptures continually throughout the service. And if you need a Bible, you'll find a pew Bible there for you. And this passage begins on page 390. 390, Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. I've mentioned to you before that several years ago, Lindsay and I had the privilege of going uh, to London and Oxford, England on a study program, and one of our first stops was in, uh, was in London at St. Paul's Cathedral. It is a massive uh, church, a massive place there in London. I'm told that today it holds, can hold comfortably about 3,500 people. That's a lot of people, but as you can imagine, it hasn't always been filled to the max. In fact, in the year 1740, on Easter Sunday, only six people gathered for communion on Easter. As you looked at the building, you can understand how dark their spiritual condition had become there in London. But as you branch out into the open-air preaching of a man named George Whitfield, and you study his story, you see that God was already working to revive his people there in our native land, there in England. 1740, the preaching of George Whitfield, he began to preach in the open air to 10,000 people. And as Whitfield looked out at this crowd, he preached to all sorts of people, including uh, miners. There was a group of miners who had just come up out of the mine. They hadn't gone home. They hadn't showered. They had coal dust and ashes all over them. Their faces were black with soot. But as Whitfield preached God's Word, he preached in such a way that Ezra would have been proud. He explained the Scriptures, and George Whitfield later reflected he knew that God was at work because, as he put it, he could see white gutters made by their tears down their black cheeks. As the Spirit of God began to work through the Word of God and convicted these hardened miners, they began to weep over their sin. We call that movement that began with the preaching of George Whitfield the Great Awakening. Many of us would readily say we long for, we desire, we hope for a great awakening once again in our day. We would pray for revival in our land, revival in our church. But I'm afraid that most of us are not willing to pay the price that comes with revival. Because as we look at God's Word, we often see that the first evidence of a true movement of the Holy Spirit is an awakened conscience leading to genuine sorrow for sin in God's people. That's the way James Montgomery Boyce described it. The fact that when God brings revival, He begins, through His Word, convicting His people of their sin. I'm not sure most of us want to pay that price to actually see revival. Today we're in Nehemiah 9 and 10, as I told you, and when you combine that with chapter 8, where we were last time, we're in a three-chapter cycle or pattern where God's Word is proclaimed, and because of that, the Spirit of God convicts His people, and then... They begin to live differently. There's a change of life in these people. To put that in New Testament terms, uh, to put it in the language of the little book of Titus, 
The gospel leads to godliness. When God's Word is proclaimed, when the Spirit of God is at work through His Word, it brings about a change of life. Combining with chapter 8 and now today in chapters 9 and 10, we see that on full display. We're only going to read verses 1 through 3 as we begin, but if you found your place in Nehemiah chapter 9, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Nehemiah chapter 9, for now verses 1 through 3. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. This is the word of the Lord, and let's go to Him in prayer. Father in heaven, we come to You approaching Your same word. Lord, we have the complete revelation of Your word, and so we have more than You gave Your saints in Nehemiah's day and Ezra's day. But Your word is sufficient. It is able to bring us to salvation, and it's able to sustain us and grow us and sanctify us in our sanctification. Lord, we pray that You would be glorified in us today. We pray that we would understand your word. Where we need repentance, I pray that you would convict us. Where we need comfort, I pray that you would comfort. But above all, we pray you would be glorified through the preaching of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The Feast of Booths has concluded, that Feast of Tabernacles. And one whole day has passed since where we left off in chapter 8. It's now the 24th day of the month, and people are lingering in Jerusalem. They're there by their own free will. They could go back home if they wanted to, but something is drawing them, something is compelling them to stay there in Jerusalem. Do you remember back in chapter 8 when they heard the word of the Lord proclaimed, how they began to weep? The people wanted to cry. And Ezra and Nehemiah, the leader, said, no, today is not a day for weeping. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And then they said, not only is today a day of rejoicing, for it was their their new year, but also they had other celebrations, the uh, week long of reading the word, and now the Feast of Tabernacles. But all that has come to a conclusion. And the people could go home if they wanted to, yet they stay in Jerusalem, and they're no longer going to stifle their sorrow. In the past, their weeping had to wait, but not now. Nothing is holding back their tears. Nothing will stop them from grieving over their sin. As I've said, the people willingly, freely are assembling once again. And they have the the sure signs of mourning. Did you notice that there in verse 1? They're assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with, with dirt, with earth on their heads. Their outward appearance reflects the inner attitude of their hearts. Now, you see, if Pastor Ezra had been working to manipulate their emotions back in chapter 8, then the moment would have passed. If he was just trying to gin up a fake revival, that's too late. He's about 23 days too late. But this is clearly a work of God because neither Ezra nor Nehemiah could generate or fake what happens in chapters 9 and 10. God is at work reviving His people. Look at verse 
2, you see that the Israelites, the seed, the offspring of Israel, separate themselves from all foreigners. Now, if you've been with us through our whole study of Ezra and Nehemiah, that may ring some bells. You may think, wait a minute, back in Ezra chapter 9, we dealt with this. We dealt with the fact that the people had intermarried with other nations around them. And as we stressed then, we must stress once again, it has nothing to do with ethnicity or the color of anyone's skin. It has everything to do with the purity of the people of God. That when God's people marry someone outside of their faith, almost always they will be pulled away from worshiping the one true and living God. And so that problem that we thought was solved back in Ezra 9, it's still there. They're still dealing with it. In fact, they're going to deal with it again before the book is over. But they separate themselves from all foreigners, and they stand, they confess not just their sins, but also the iniquities of their fathers. The sins that they have learned from their forefathers, the sins that they have inherited, so to speak, they've also committed, and they're standing there confessing their sins. And this is how it happens. Verse 3 tells us, they stood up in their place, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Now, I can see some of you, you're already doing the math. You're thinking, wait a minute, 24 divided by 4, that's 6 hours. Oh, my goodness, they read the Bible for 6 hours standing up. Well, I have good news for you. They were only measuring the sunlight, the daytime, which would be 12 hours. So cut it in half. Instead of 6 hours, they stood for 3 hours, and they read God's Word. They heard it once again. They heard these books that we would avoid like the plague, like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy being read out loud. And once again, they're convicted because of God's word. They're convicted because of the sins they've committed. And so not only do they read God's word for three hours in the day, for another quarter of it, they make confession and worship the Lord their God. They fall down on their face praying, God, forgive us for what we have done. Harry Reeder was a pastor in Birmingham. He actually died earlier this year. But he told the story about ministering in Uganda. And he said he was preaching to a congregation in Uganda, and he preached his first sermon. And when he got done, they said, okay, preach another one. And so he began to preach another sermon. And when he got done with that, they said, all right, preach again. And, and he asked them, he said, are you sure you really want me to, to preach again? And here's what the people said. We've walked a long way today. They had come a long way. They wanted to hear God's Word proclaimed. There was a hunger for the Word that I'm afraid most of us, I dare say all of us, myself included, have never experienced. We've never hungered for God's Word in such a way that we would gladly hear God's Word read for three hours standing up in a day. But they begin to confess their sins, and really the rest of the chapter tells us what that looked like. But I can't help but notice, even before we get into this prayer that takes up and occupies the rest of chapter 9, how unlike them we are. If we were faced with our history of sins, we would begin to make excuses. And that's not what they do. They begin to gladly, eagerly confess their sins before the Lord. They don't minimize their sins. They don't sound like Adam in the garden saying, it's not my fault, God, it's this woman you gave me. That's what we would do. We would be just like our father Adam and start making excuses. I wonder if you've heard some of these excuses people often make for sin. Sometimes people say, look, it's not my fault. I can't change who I am. It's just in my genes. It's just my genetics. That's just the way God made me. Well, it's true. You're born a sinner, and that's why you must repent and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. 
But sometimes we try to make that excuse, oh, that's just the way I am. I can't do anything about it. Others might say, listen, you think my anger is a problem? My gluttony is a problem? You should see where I came from. You should see my mother or my father. You would really understand why I am the way I am. Other people say things like, well, you know, I've reached the age where I just say what I think. My grandmother was that way. It was like she thought when she reached 90 that there was some switch that she could just remove the filter and say whatever she wanted to. But somehow I missed that switch in the Bible. I missed the part in James where it talks about controlling our tongue and it says up until you reach age 90. I don't think it's in there. We're never given a free pass to stop living according to God's word, but sometimes we use age as an excuse. Other times people say, look, I'm just old, I'm set in my ways, I like what I like and I can't change it, I'm not going to do anything about it. Again, that's making it an excuse for what the Bible often calls sin. You understand when God brings revival, what we pray for, we will no longer make excuses about our sin. We will exclaim with Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. That's the attitude that we have when God is at work, when He's reviving His people. And that's the attitude we find here in Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, as you see before you there, whatever Bible you have, I'm sure this passage, chapters 9 and 10, take up multiple pages. We're not going to be able to comment on it all, let alone, let alone read it all. So I want to give you three words to help us organize our thoughts. Three words to help us, uh, to give us something to hang our hat on as we work through this passage. The three words are remember, repent, and renew. Remember, repent, and renew. So at first we want to consider the emphasis that this prayer places on remembering. Algis Huxley said in one of his writings that that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of all the lessons that history has to teach. Perhaps a more familiar quote credited to the philosopher George Santana, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it or relive it. That's attributed to him. So we're often told about why it's important to remember our history and that's not just a worldly concept. The Bible tells us that. Peter, in his second letter, speaking to Christians, says, I want to stir up your mind by way of remembering. Second Timothy, the letter we've been studying in community Bible study, we've seen those commands to guard the good deposit, to keep the faith that's been entrusted to him. And Timothy is told to remember, remember Jesus Christ. We come this morning, we gather at the table of remembrance. Christ has told us to do this in remembrance of Him. We're called to remember so often because we're so prone to forget. Forgetfulness is not something that merely comes with age. It's part of our sinful condition. We forget what God has done for us. We forget all the ways that the Lord has blessed. Is that not what Israel did? Time and time again, the Bible says they forgot the Lord their God. How often do we do that? We forget everything that God has done, how He's answered prayers. We forget all of His good gifts because we focus on the present inconveniences that are before our eyes. We're spiritually nearsighted. We can only see the problem right in front of us. We forget the big picture of what God has done. When we come to this prayer in Nehemiah 9, this prayer reminds us of the big picture about what God has done in the life of his people in the Old Testament. 
You see verses 4 and 5, they, they give you a list of names, the Levites who are leading the people in prayer. They begin by saying, Stand up and bless the Lord, your God, from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. This begins the prayer of praise that the, the Levites offer, but ultimately the people offer. This is a prayer of the people. Ezra and Nehemiah are nowhere in view in these chapters. They're not the main focus because as we've seen time and time again in Ezra and Nehemiah, these books are about what God is doing amongst his people. The emphasis is on the corporate nature of all of the people of God. Well, you begin there in verse 6, the main uh, part of the prayer begins. In verses 6 through 15, the emphasis is all on God. God is the subject of every sentence in verses 6 through 15. If you went through there and you underlined every time the, the pronoun you is used, you referring to God, you'd be there a while. Because it keeps talking over and over again about what God has done. But I don't want you to miss what he says right at the beginning of verse 6. You are the, the Lord, you alone. You are Yahweh. You are God, you alone. We're going to come back to that idea later as we go through the passage. But verse 6 refers to creation, and it just mentions creation there in verse 6. Then verses 7 and 8 talk about the call of Abram. So you understand we're moving quickly through the book of Genesis, the Old Testament history. You go from creation to what God has done in calling Abram and his people. Then you get to the book of Exodus because verses 9 through roundabout verse um, 18 gives you uh, the exodus and the immediate happenings right after God takes them out of Egypt. But as you work through these verses, ask yourself, what is God doing? You're going to notice that God is giving. He's doing a whole lot of giving. He's a generous, gracious God. Look at verse 8 with me. In verse 8, it says, You, that is God, found his, that is Abraham, God found Abraham's heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land. So God is giving to Abraham the promise of the land that will go to his offspring. Then verses 9 and 10, God sees the affliction of Abraham's descendants in Egypt. He hears their cry at the Red Sea in verse 10. And you gave, you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and against all his servants and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. God judged the Egyptians because they acted arrogantly against the Israelites. Hang on to that idea. You keep working your way through that paragraph and you see those familiar scenes from the Exodus. God divides the Red Sea. The people walk across on dry land. God leads his people by a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Verse 13, God is giving once again. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules, true laws, good statutes, and commandments. You jump down to verse 15, God is giving once again. You gave them bread from heaven. You gave them water from out of the rock. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Do you hear that repetition? The idea of giving. God is giving, giving, giving. He's generous to his people. But you keep moving through the prayer. The next section Verses 16 through 21, look how it begins. But they, but they. 
you automatically understand God has been giving, but they're not receiving appropriately. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously. They acted arrogantly. Who did we just read acted arrogantly? The Egyptians. The Egyptians acted arrogantly. And what happened to them? God judged them. He wiped them away as the Red Sea came across the army of Egypt and they were destroyed, never to be seen anymore. And if God did that to Egypt for acting arrogantly, what should the people of God, what should Israel expect when they begin to act arrogantly? They should expect judgment. They should expect God to work and judge them just as he did to the Egyptians. But instead, what did God do? God kept giving. (laughs) Look at uh, verse 20. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. There's the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, by the way. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. You go down to verse 22. It talks about God giving them kingdoms and peoples, people there to conquer. And verse 24 says that God gives them the enemies into their hands. So even though they've acted arrogantly, God continues being gracious to his people Israel. He continues to give and give and give. Look at verse 21. It summarizes their wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years. Verse 21 says, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Can you imagine that? God has met their need, their every need, down to the tiniest detail for 40 years in the wilderness. God gave and gave and gave. They lacked nothing. And as one commentator said, they lacked nothing and they appreciated nothing. Because verse 17 says they were not mindful of the wonders that God had done. They didn't pay attention. They didn't learn from those things. They weren't grateful for all that God had done for them. Go down to verse 26. God has been so gracious, but verse 26 says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. They've sinned. They're disobedient. They've rebelled. Once again, God keeps giving, but notice how he gives this time. Verse 27, therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies. God is still giving, but now he is giving them over to judgment. Into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors, judges, who saved them from the hand of their enemies enemies. Even when God gives them into the hands of their enemies, gives them over to judgment, God is still listening. He's still merciful. He's still gracious. And when they cry out to him, he sends a deliverer. As we've moved forward in Israel's history, this is now the book of Judges. And you know that cycle that you see in the book of Judges. It's described there in verse 28, that the people cry out to God for a deliverer, God gives them a deliverer. He sets them free. They praise the Lord, and that lasts for about five minutes, and they begin to sin against God again. They begin to forget all of his mercies, all of his kindness, and they rebel, and God gives them over to judgment, and it keeps happening over and over and over again. That's 
the book of Judges. So as we think back on their history, even what we've seen so far, we've been called to remember. Remember their history. God is the creator. God is the one who's called out for himself a people. And even as he's calling out for himself a people, they continue to rebel. But God is gracious. He's tender. He's forgiving. But he does give his people over to judgment. Now, we need to begin transitioning from thinking about remembering to thinking about repenting. Why do the people of Israel need to repent? Listen, we've done just a quick read-through, a quick overview. I would encourage you this afternoon or this week to read through all of this prayer in Nehemiah 9. It's the longest recorded prayer in the Old Testament. We read about what the children of Israel did, and we understand that it's bad, but we don't think a whole lot harder about it than that. I wonder if you've ever stopped to really consider and wonder, why is it so bad? We're so familiar with the fact that Israel failed that we really don't think about it any deeper than that, any further than that. We come to the Old Testament and we say, okay, they messed up, and that's really the end of our study. Why was it so bad? What did they do? Go back to verse 17. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Wait a minute, what? They wanted to go back to Egypt? That's how deep their rebellion goes. Verse 16 told us that they acted presumptuously, they acted arrogantly, they stiffened their necks. It repeats that in verse 17. Stiff necks, they're not obeying the commandments of God. They even appoint a leader to go back to Egypt. Now listen, we understand. Everybody wants to go back to the good old days. It doesn't matter how old you are. You can be 10 years old and you remember how great things were when you were five and you want to go back to the good old days. It's part of our human nature. But sometimes we forget that the good old days actually weren't that good. They want to go back to what they're calling the good old days back in Egypt. But for Israel, that meant bondage and slavery. That meant making bricks without straw. Well, they said, let's go back. Let's go back, Moses. Do you remember in the story of Exodus, it's kind of referred to here in these verses, what were they complaining about? God brings them out, he parts the Red Sea, he sets them free, they're going towards the promised land, and they begin to cry out for food. They say, Moses, we're hungry, we want food, we're about to die, would you give us some food? And God provides food for them. And then the very next chapter they say, Moses, we're thirsty, we need water, we're about to die. And God provides water for them. And so they say, okay, Moses, well, God has provided food and water, but it's not really what we like. It's it's not really what we wanted. Don't you remember the food back in Egypt, Moses? It had a little more pep, Moses. It had a little more zing in it back in Egypt. Don't you remember the good old days, Moses? We had onions. We had garlic. We had leeks. Doesn't that make you want to go into slavery just so you can get a little bit of spice on your food? That's what the people of Israel said. They they said, we want that, Moses. We're going back to Egypt. And it tells us they even appointed a leader. They were ready to leave Moses on Mount Sinai, receiving the word of God. They were going to leave him and go back. Now, we understand that that's bad. But the part we don't want to say out loud is that we get it. We understand we, want to, we all want to indulge our preferences at times, myself included. 
We all have selfish tendencies. We like what we like. And if we're not careful, we will elevate our preferences over God's Word. That's what the children of Israel were doing. That's why we need God's Word to show us our sinfulness, to show us how we need to repent, because their sin is not just a little run-of-the-mill self-centeredness. We would read that and we would think, okay, well, they weren't really satisfied. I get that. We're not always that way. But look what happens next in the story. Verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. This is the great crime that Israel has done. In the middle of the desert, they have formed for themselves a golden calf. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to worship God on their own terms. In Russell's Sunday School class, we studied Exodus 19 a little earlier in the story this morning, and we saw that you can't do that. You can't just approach God in your own terms. You can't just show up to the mountain and say, God, it's nice to meet you. I will come at my own appointed time. No, you must worship God in His terms. But that's not what we want. We want a God in our image, a God of our own making, a God that we can control, a God that we can fully understand. That's the God that we want. That's the God we will have, so say the Israelites. You see, their self-centeredness, their desire for their preferences was actually idolatry. Is that not what Romans 1 just told us earlier? Worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Let me, let me try to give an illustration to help you understand because I do think this is very important. We, we miss this so often that what we think are just small things are actually idolatry in the eyes of God. Can you imagine a young man coming to you, a young man that you've known all of his life, you've watched him grow up, you've seen him get married, he's been married a few years, and he, he comes to you and you ask him, hey, how's life going? How's the married life treating you? He says, well, I'm, I'm thinking about leaving. I, I, I'm thinking about backing out. I don't want to be married anymore. And you say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And say, I, I, I know your wife. She's a wonderful, godly young woman. She's, she's going to be a great mother to your children, a great keeper of the home. She's a godly woman. And on top of that, she's beautiful. She cooks. She does everything that anybody would desire in a wife. He says, yeah, it's, it's true, but it's that cooking part that bothers me. She just cooks healthy stuff all the time. She, she wants me to eat healthy things. That's not the way I was raised. That's not what I like. You see, before I got married, I could eat whatever I wanted to. I could go out and have fast food. I could have, I could have candy. I could do whatever I wanted to. But now she wants me to eat healthy. He said, I'm thinking about being done. I hope that you would take that young man, slap him in the back of the head, and show him how foolish he's being and how idolatrous he's being. He desires his own preferences, his own indulgences over the covenant that he's made with his wife. How often do we do that? Have you seen that in other churches? We know people. We all know people from other churches. We ask them how they're doing. They say, well, I mean, things are going well, but I don't really like it right now. I'm kind of I'm thinking about leaving. And, and you say, why? So I remember when y'all were without a pastor and you were praying. You prayed that a man of God would come and he would preach God's word. And, and he's come. I've heard about all the good things he's doing. What, what happened? Has he done something sinful? Is he doing something unbiblical? say, no, no, it's not that. I just, I just don't like it. It's just not my preference. And see, what my fear is, 
is that the first situation, we would gladly slap the young man on the back of the head and say, you're being foolish. But in the second situation, we wouldn't because we all want to indulge our preferences. And you understand that that's what the great sin of Israel was. Their preference was to be safe and comfortable and have the food they wanted, the flavors, the spices they wanted. That led them to make a golden calf. They said, this is the calf. This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. They had gone from being free. They had gone from desiring an onion to worshiping a false god that quickly. And that's what happens when we go down this road of sin. You see, the people of God, they began to realize that their sins were not just little insignificant preferences, but they were high treason against the one who truly is God. The one that back at the beginning of the prayer, verse 6, you, you alone are Yahweh. You are the only one true living God. Now we would read that. We might think, okay, the the, uh, Levites are saying, okay, the Egyptian gods, they're not God. The Assyrian kings, they're not God. The Persian kings, they're not God. But what we need to understand is not only is that true, but we are not God. There is one God. And he has spoken in his word. And the people of Israel didn't understand that. And they continue to face the judgment for their sins. But now, God's word has been read. They begin to feel conviction for their sin. And they're crying out to God, asking for forgiveness. We've seen the severity of their sin. But we need to see the goodness of God. We need to see the goodness of God's character. Look at the end of verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You did not forsake them. Look at verse 19, the beginning. It says, you in in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Go down back to that paragraph, verses 26 through 31. We noticed how the paragraph began with, nevertheless, We saw all the good things God has done. Nevertheless, this is how badly, how sinful the people are. But now look at the end of the paragraph. Once again, nevertheless, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. This is the character of God. It's all over the Bible. It's all over the Old Testament. We read from it earlier in a different passage in Psalms. This is who God is. God has been warning his people, lovingly, kindly warning his people. You look there in verse 26. It says that God had sent his prophets who had warned them. You go to verse 29, the beginning of the verse, and you warned them. You go again to verse 30. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. How was God warning his people? Through his word. Through the spirit of God at work in his word. But keep going in verse 30. Yet they would not give ear. Well, you look at the last paragraph of the prayer. Verses 32 through 37, there's a a tone shift. It's no longer they. Here's what they have done in the past. Now it's we. Those offering this prayer have moved along in history until they've gotten to their day, and they're saying we're just like them. Now we, we have sinned against you, God. This is our situation. And you go all the way to the end of the prayer, at the end of verse 37, 
And it says, we are in great distress. That's the end of the prayer. They don't necessarily ask for anything different. They've just asked God to remember them, to recognize their situation. They cry out to God saying, we are in great distress. They simply throw themselves on the mercy of God. Just like the, the tax collector in Luke 18 who cried out, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. That's what they're doing here. They remember all the goodness, all of God's graciousness in the past. So they're crying out once again, Lord, be faithful. The goodness from the past ought to remind them that God is still good. He's still faithful. There's hope for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Great is God's faithfulness. We've remembered their sinfulness. We've, we've seen God's faithfulness. And this ought to remind each of us here that we, we all have much to repent of. We all have many things to cry out to God asking for Him to save us. Perhaps this morning you're hearing all of this and you think, oh my goodness, you, you listen to these things about the people of Israel, I'm no better off. I've acted arrogantly, I've stiffened my neck to the Word of God, I did not obey the commandments of God. I've been disobedient. I've rebelled against God and against His law. I've committed great blasphemies against God. I've acted presumptuously. I didn't obey the commandments. You may recognize this morning that you are indeed a sinner. You need the mercy of God. Cry out to God, asking Him to save you. Listen carefully. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. Any trained animal can raise their hand. I'm not asking you to walk an aisle because walking an aisle never saved anybody. I'm asking you to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, to repent of your sins, to turn away from your wickedness in life, turning to Christ, trusting that He and He alone can save you, that nothing you can do in and of yourself can save yourself. Only Christ can save you. That's the prayer of these people in Nehemiah 9. They're praying that God would redeem them and save them, and rescue them. We hear this repeated a little differently in the New Testament with the same message. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, if you're here today and you recognize that you've rejected the mercy of God, there's still time. There's still hope. Don't leave here today without speaking to I or Pastor Laramie or somebody around you. Ask them about the gospel and we will spend all the time in the world explaining to you the good news of Jesus Christ. There's no reason for you to leave here today condemned in your sins. Christ stands ready to save sinners. But when he saves us, he brings about a change in our life. Have we not seen that so far? God's word has been proclaimed in chapter 8. 
They've confessed, they've repented their sins here in chapter 9. Now chapter 10, we see a change is evident in the people of God. They've remembered, they've repented, but now it is time to be renewed. It's time to think about this idea of renewal. Warren Wearsby tells the story about a man in a church that every time he would pray in church, he would always end his prayers the same way. Have you ever heard someone like that? If that's you, don't lift your hand. Perhaps you have a phrase that's always the same at the end of every prayer you pray. Wearsby tells about a man who every time he would conclude his church prayers, he would say, Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life. Clean the cobwebs out of my life. Have you ever heard it put that way? I never heard that phrase before. You wish somebody cleaned that cobweb out that you walked through earlier, don't you? That would have been good. No, this man always ended his prayers the same way. Clean the cobwebs out of my life. And somebody got tired of hearing it all the time. And so the next time that man prayed in church, they interrupted him and said, Lord, when the man got ready to say, Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life, he said, while you're at it, Lord, kill the spider too. We need that. Sometimes we want God to keep cleaning up the mess that we make of our sins when we ought to be busy killing the sin. We ought to be mortifying our sin. We need to put that sin behind us, not just saying, Lord, clean up the mess I've made. Stop making the mess. That's what we see here in chapter 9, verse 38, through the end of of chapter 10. You notice here, because of their desire to live differently, look at verse 38, chapter 9. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Because of this desire to live differently, they do something serious. They put it down in writing. They make a firm covenant in writing. Verse 10, you, I mean chapter 10, verse 1, you begin to see a list of all these names. All these people who are involved, they say, we want to live differently, and we want to live differently so strongly that we're willing to write it down. We're willing to show it to everybody for the whole world to see we're going to be different. So you see the leaders listed in verse 1, Nehemiah and Zedekiah. They're the leaders, so they're listed there at the top. Verses 2 through 8 give you the names of the priests. Verses 9 through 13 give you the names of the Levites. Verses 14 through 27 give you the chiefs of the people. And then you get down to verses 28 and following. You get these folks who didn't necessarily, weren't able to sign. They didn't have a legal authorization in court. But look at verse 29. They too join with their brothers, their nobles, and they enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord. Yahweh, our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. All the people come together. They say, because we've heard God's Word, because God is at work in our lives, because God is reviving us, we want to live differently. We're going to go quickly through uh, just giving the highlights of what they vow in the rest of the letter, or the rest of the covenant, excuse me. But verse 30 emphasizes there are no more mixed marriages as we spoke to earlier in the service, but it's an issue they're still going to have later in their history. Verse 31 regards the Sabbath and whether or not they will sell to other people who are not Jewish on the Sabbath day. Verses 32 and 33 talk about the temple taxes for the house of our God. That's a phrase that keeps popping up through this covenant, the house of our God. Verse 34, Lee, you're going to love this. It talks about firewood. Even the firewood matters in the house of God. 
You can't all be a priest. You can't all be a Levite. You can't all be a singer. You can't all do the various tasks, but anybody can be involved in making sure the firewood is there for all the sacrifices that they must make. Everybody can be involved in the work of the house of God. Verses 35 and following talk about these other offerings that we don't have time to look at. Verse 39, the end of the chapter, the end of the covenant, makes clear the the emphasis of it all. We will not neglect the house of our God. Do you see that at the end of verse 39? We will not neglect the house of our God. Now, this is pretty striking. Think of how far we've come in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The beginning of Ezra, they didn't have a temple. The temple's been destroyed, and they're not even living in the land. God has stirred up a pagan king, and God has stirred up the hearts of his people, and he sent them back, and they've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the walls. They've reinstituted worship. They're hearing God's word read and proclaimed. They've come a long way. Haggai, the prophet, would be proud. Remember we looked at his short little two-chapter prophecy earlier in our study of Ezra? And he was concerned at how long it had taken the people to rebuild the house of our God. But now they have rebuilt it and they have covenanted together. They have promised they're going to maintain. We will not neglect the house of our God. You think about these things that they make vows about. And first you may think that really has nothing to do with us today. But when you realize they're speaking about their time and their talents... They're speaking about their finances and their personal relationships. Those do apply to us today. And they said for themselves, time, talent, finances, personal relationships, God has authority over these matters. And we will submit all of these relationships to the Lord our God. You may wonder and think, what is this language about a covenant? We're we're Baptists. We're New Testament Christians. We don't have covenants, do we? Well, in a few minutes when we go downstairs after we eat, I'm going to read the church covenant. And I understand that it was adopted by the church before any of us were alive, but our forefathers thought it to be a good practice. And it's a good one for us to dust off and revisit the promises that we make to one another for how we will live as Christians. The same way that these people are making promises to one another to not neglect the house of God. In fact, When we think about a covenant, we remember, of course, that we're under the new covenant. The covenant of Jesus Christ that he's brought to us by his blood. The covenant that we remember at this table. We remember what Christ has done. We repent of any unconfessed sin. If if the Lord has been so kind to you this morning to remind you of sins that you have not yet confessed, maybe even against somebody else in this room, go to them. Ask for their forgiveness before you receive the bread and the cup from the table. The Lord's table is a time to remember, it's a time to repent, and it's a time to renew, to renew our fellowship with Christ. In fact, did you know that every Lord's Day, you come to church, you have the opportunity to renew your covenant with God. You say, wait a minute, what's that all about? Think about uh, a married couple who renew their vows Perhaps they've been married 50 years and they renew on that time, or any time in their marriage they say, we're going to renew our vows They didn't stop being married. They're not any more married now that they've renewed their vows. But renewing their vows is an opportunity to be reminded of their love for one another and to rekindle their relationship with one another. Every time we gather on the Lord's Day, we have that opportunity not to get saved all over again, but to be reminded 
of our love for Christ and to rekindle our relationship with Christ. Think with me one more time about the pattern we've seen so far. God's Word has been proclaimed. God's Word has brought conviction and repentance in the heart of His people and has brought about a changed life in those who have submitted to His Word. Is that not roughly the same pattern of what we do every Lord's Day? We hear God's Word. We gather not because we're bringing God down to us, but because He's invited us according to His Word. And when we hear God's Word, we're reminded that we are not like Him. We are sinners, and we need a Savior. So we're reminded, we're not getting saved once again every week, but we're reminded of the salvation that we have in Christ. And when we've been reminded and cleansed of any unconfessed sin, we're ready to hear from God. And we're ready to go out and live differently and to serve Him. That's the same pattern that Christians have used for 2,000 years. It's the same pattern of worship that you find all over the Scriptures, even right here in the book of Nehemiah. You understand that what we're attempting to do at Ramah is not new. It's old. It's as old as the Bible itself. May we truly be a remembering and a repenting and a renewing people of the book. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you pleading for mercy. The mercy that we've seen on full display in Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10. It's because of your mercy that we can draw near to you. It's because of your rich mercy that you've saved us. Not because of anything that we have done. But you've told us, Father, that because you have saved us, you already have good works prepared for us from the foundations of the earth. Lord, may we be zealous to live lives of good deeds. May the gospel truly lead to godliness in our lives. May we truly exemplify the change that you have made in us. Lord, we pray even now that you, by your Spirit, would continue to work in us, that you would convict us of unconfessed sin, that you would convict us of the sins that look so much like the Israelites, of our desire to, to elevate our own comfort, our own preferences, our own desires above your word. And Lord, may we be renewed in your word today. May we love you more today than we ever have before. Not because we're so special, but because you are so great, because of the salvation that you've shown us through your word. And even now, as we prepare to gather at the Lord's table, may we be reminded of what you've done for us in Christ. For those who continue to abide in their sins, who have rejected you, Lord, would you draw them today? Would you save sinners today? For those of us that you've already saved and we've walked with you for for years, maybe even decades, may we truly be renewed in our covenant with you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we all prepare to respond, we may respond in different ways. You may need to respond to the Lord and trust in Christ for salvation today. I'm always glad to talk with you where I am, but it will be a longer conversation and we would gladly talk after the service as well. But we need to respond with the sentiment of this hymn that our lives would be submitted to Jesus Christ. And even if this is a hymn that you don't fully know or like, pray that it would be the true sentiment of your heart, that the Lord would take your life and let it be set apart, consecrated to our Savior Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we sing.